G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've been working our way through Genesis 5, and we're almost, almost halfway there. So what are we doing this week, Tim? Well, today we're going to conclude the first half of the Genesis 5 genealogy, and that means we're looking at number five on our genealogical list, Mahalalel. Let's get into it. And Malalil lived 165 years and became the father of Yared. And Malalil lived after he became the father of Yared 730 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Malalil amounted to 895 years, and he died. So that's our reading, which once again comes from the Septuagint, specifically the New English Translation, or NETS. You will note that the name we commonly read as Jared in most English translations begins with the letter I, because in Greek, the sound that we would normally identify with a Y was written that way. And I just point that out because of all the noise you hear online about the correct way to say names like Jesus. Yeah, people get a bit weird about that, don't they? Yeah, we actually got the letter J from the Germanic language group, which likewise pronounced it with that sound that we associate with the letter Y. So, look, it's fine if you want to say Yeshua or something to that effect. That's not wrong. It's also not wrong to say Jesus. Not everybody happens to be an Israelite. They can say it how they want to say it. Leave them alone. So if you're reading Genesis 5 and you want to say Jared, that's fine. But the Israelite pronunciation would be more like Yered. Anyway... We'll talk more about him later, and I did talk about the whole Names of God issue back in the very first episode of this podcast. I do remember that. It seems like a million years ago now. Yeah, millions and millions. Anyway, today we're talking about Mahalalel, and as we look at the meaning of his name, we're still talking about how people used divine names because the end of this name is a divine name. I'm talking about El. Let's just make this clear right from the outset. This has nothing to do with the supreme deity of the Canaanite pantheon who is referred to as El. When we look at the way this word is used in the literature of the ancient Near East, we can see that El or Il or Ilu, as you might find it in various ancient dialects, was basically the way we use the word God. In other words, just as God becomes capital G, God, when we're talking about the greatest of all divine beings, You'll find that in other ancient cultures, they used divine names like El in similar fashion. So what does that mean? What that means is that a divine name used as a component of a person's name doesn't necessarily tie them to a specific deity. It may, but it's not a certainty. And Israelite people and the authors who wrote about them had no problem using the title El as a reference to their own God. But Mahalalel is not an Israelite. Israel isn't going to exist for a long time yet from the perspective of this historical figure. El might be the closest thing he has to a name for the God of Scripture. Getting back to that thing about the letter J and the way that it would sound to us like the letter Y in our hearing, if these ancient patriarchs knew the divine name and intended to use it like we see in names like Elijah, we'd get that Jah or Yah ending on the name. Ah, uh, that's where that comes from. Yeah, so I think that this text shows its authenticity and antiquity in the preservation of these early theophoric names. So what about the main part of the name, Mahalia? What's, uh, what's that about? Most people are going to say that it means praise or something like that. 
Chuck Missler had blessed. That might be a bit of a stretch. The idea of praise here comes from a word that basically means to make something shiny. So the idea of praise is to give praise or to glorify, to, to make it bright. So for that reason, I don't think that this name only means something like praised by God or the praise of God. I think it makes more sense to talk about him in terms of revealing the glory of God. And to give you an idea of that in context, I want to draw your attention to the only place in the Hebrew Bible where the word that this name is based on can be found. And I'm going to have to go further and show you the only translation that actually gets this correct, which is the King James. It's been a while since we had a bit of King Jimmy, and you know I love it, so here it is. This is Proverbs 27, verse 21. As the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. Yeah, you, you do love it, but I have a question. So there you go. That is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible that features the Hebrew word mahalal. And as much as I said that the King James is the only one that gets this right, it's only right insofar as it doesn't get the grammar completely backwards like all the other translations. Yeah, again, that's great, but I don't think I understand. I just wanted to ask you one thing. We still have to deal with the issue of this terminology being translated as praise. As I say, I think it really should be talking about the revealing of glory, which sounds like it might just be semantics, but I think you're going to see that there's something important going on here as we continue. Uh, never mind. I, I suppose I can look it up later or something. That idea of the revealing of glory comes from the root found within the word mahalal, which we saw in that proverb and which we find within mahalalel. So what about if we treat this word a bit like an ogre? You mean because it smells bad and makes you cry? No, it's because ogres have layers, like, just like onions. Onions have layers, ogres have layers. Ogres are like onions. Why didn't you just say onions then? Because unlike an onion, a certain lovable ogre might have some redeeming qualities under the skin, much like our friend Mahalalel. If we peel back the first layer, we get Mahalal, and if we peel back another, we get Halal. And no, we're not talking about kosher for Muslims. Halal is the root word at the centre of Mahalalel, and it has a semantic range that covers ideas like shining and glory and boasting, as well as praise. So what we're seeing here is that the noun at the center of all this is something like glory. And to develop that idea further, we have the idea of the revealing of glory, which is what we're supposed to be seeing in that proverb. Let's read it again and look at the context. Proverbs 27 verse 21. As the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. I've still got a question, you know. Let's play a little game called relationships. The first line says, as the fining pot for silver. Okay, so we have a relationship between the two items mentioned in the verse. One is a crucible used for heating and melting metals, and the other is the metal in question. Ah, there it is. What are you talking about? My question, I finally got the answer. Sorry, what question? Uh, I've only been trying to ask you for the last five minutes. I was trying to find out what a signing pot is. It's a, a crucible. Oh, yeah, that. Anyway, what's the purpose of using a crucible? It's for heating and purifying the metal. If you heat up the metal and lots of impurities begin to rise to the surface as it melts, then you know that this metal isn't very good. If you melt that silver and nothing rises to the top and there are no impurities to be found, then you know it's of high quality. That stuff's going to shine and look amazing. Now let's look at the next part of the proverb. It says, and the furnace for gold. This time we have a different part of the metal refining equipment. The furnace is the means by which you melt the metal. And the gold is, of course, the metal being melted. I'm going to suggest that the same relationship exists 
between the crucible and the silver is what we see here between the furnace and the gold. The first thing is the means by which the second thing is shown to be of value. The second thing is going to be revealed as having a certain value because of the fact that it's been tested and proved by the first thing. Now let's look at the final element of the proverb. So is a man to his praise. We begin with a comparative statement which outlines the continued pattern of relationship between the items being mentioned. It says, so is. That means we're going to see the same relationship here between the man and his praise as we've already seen between the crucible and the silver and also between the furnace and the gold. This proverb is complicated slightly in our translation because when we go back to the Hebrew, we find that instead of that connective word to in the middle of a man to his praise, we actually have a Hebrew word that means opening or mouth. And that has prompted most interpreters to see that as the mouth that praises him. So is a man to the mouth that praises him. But if we interpret it that way, it sounds like what the writer of this proverb is trying to tell us is that the man is going to refine or purify the people that say nice things about him, possibly by burning or melting them. Now, I'm not a scholar, but I have a bit of a hunch that there might be something wrong with that interpretation. Yeah, that's not right. Let's try again. What if the metal being referred to in the first two parts of the proverb is actually the end result or the good thing that comes out of something being represented by the first part, the refining equipment? What if the refining equipment actually represents the medium or the process by which the desired product is achieved? This is an example of what we call metonymy, where the mention of a thing implies the action that's carried out by the thing. Like when they say, people died by the sword. Like there was a sword and people died. What it actually means is that the sword was used to stab people and kill them. So there was an action that took place and the sword represents the battle, not just the existence of the object. In that view, it would be some process or an ordeal that the man endures, which results in the revealing of something good about him as the end result. And the end result that is produced by such a process would not be something extrinsic like the opinions of other people, but it would be something intrinsic that has come out of the process that the man has been through. That would indicate that what we should be seeing in that word halal is not boasting about the man or the praise that other people give him, but rather the inner quality that he has developed as a result of having endured an ordeal. That would be the thing that makes him worthy of praise rather than the praise itself. We see this kind of imagery all the time in the New Testament with the idea of being refined as if by fire is the kind of language used to describe the developing of positive qualities and virtues in the life of people suffering persecution. So coming back to this proverb, what we should be seeing is that there's some kind of inward glory that's revealed by the endurance of hardship in much the same way that the beauty of gold and silver really be seen only after it's been refined and the impurities are stripped away. That makes sense. You do see that a lot in the Bible. Yeah, so you should be able to understand why I prefer the King James Version, even though I would quibble about the use of praise rather than glory. When you consider how other translations present that verse, as an example, have a look at the ESV. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. You see how the final part of the proverb is completely flipped around? According to this reading, you have the praise of the man refining him. And what's the result of that? The end product is the man? It doesn't make any sense. That's just weird. And I should point out that this chapter in Proverbs begins with another well-known verse. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So if the author of Proverbs has been consistent, and he is, what he's trying to say is that your praise shouldn't come from within yourself. 
Why would that be any different when we get further down the chapter and he starts talking about the revealing of what is inside a man through the testing he endures? That's a good point. Okay, so all of that's to say that if we're going to interpret this name correctly, despite its very limited use in the Hebrew Bible, we really have to get comfortable with digging deep like this. It's not enough to just settle on a surface reading without considering the options. The reason I'm not happy to settle on a definition like the word blessed in this situation is because blessing is a pronouncement of destiny. That's an entirely different concept. You just can't get that from what's being presented here. Even if you want to talk about praise, there's a huge difference between praise and blessing. So when we see Mahalalel, I believe we should be interpreting that as something like, his glory is God. And again, I prefer glory in there because the word glory can encompass and involve the entire semantic range suggested by that central root word, rather than just an aspect of it. You want to talk about praise? That's fine. You can do that. You want to talk about pride and boasting? That's fine. You can do that. You're allowed to boast in the greatness of God and how good he is. You're allowed to tell God what you think about how good he is. But all of that is external. That's coming from man and directed at God. And it isn't the glory of God shining forth toward men. That's why I prefer the word glory, because it captures the fact that we're talking about an intrinsic value that God has and that this man is shining to the world around him. You might be thinking now that's all well and good, but how does that fit into the bigger picture of this narrative in Genesis 5? Yeah, that's all well and good, but how does that fit into the bigger picture of this narrative in Genesis 5? Well, I was talking last time about Chuck Missler and that idea that he had about stringing together all 10 names in Genesis 5 to produce a sentence that presents the gospel. And you'll remember that I didn't buy that idea as nice as it sounds because you just can't support it from the text. But what if there was a message being presented in these names? Now, it's going to take a bit more work to get that message, and we need to be thinking of it more as a collection of ideas rather than a simple slogan or a catchphrase. You're not going to get it down to one sentence. But I think that certainly in the case of these first five names of the patriarchs, we can identify a message that's coming through. Our first name is Adam, and you'll remember that we talked about Adam as being the man who was formed of the ground. And for a lot of people, the connotation of redness associated with that name comes from the idea that the ground must have some red colour to it. That's fine, except that we also talked about the fact that the ground represents the people from which Adam was chosen to be God's representative in sacred space. That means that Adam does not look like dirt. Instead, it's God who calls him Adam before he brings him into sacred space. And I talked about how that pronouncement by God literally applies this redness to him which can be seen as an act of consecration or atonement that makes him fit to enter sacred space. As you read through the Levitical law and you see what the priests have to do in order to consecrate things for service in the tabernacle, you see the application of blood to each item, which effectively makes purification for it so that it can be brought into the place where God dwells. Next, we talked about Seth, and in him we saw somebody who was appointed or established for Eve, it was an appointment to a position left vacant by the death of Abel. For Adam, it was the establishment of a new successor after Cain wandered away. But for God, Seth was the planting of a new seed that would continue in keeping with the promise made to Eve. Our third patriarch was Enosh, and we talked about him last week after having already introduced his character back in Season 4 of the podcast, because he was also talked about in Genesis 4, we talked about how Enosh represents the human condition with all of its weakness. Then we had Canaan, and while his name reminded us of the sound of the Israelite homeland, the real focus of the name was on the idea of a little nest. And that was again focused on notions of home and family and some valuable treasure to be kept safe. So we have the consecrated man, Adam, who was established through his seed, Seth. 
And then, despite the frailty and the mortality of the man, Enosh, God did make for himself a home in which his most treasured possession would rest in safety, Canaan. And their glory was in God. Mahalalel. That's pretty incredible. So, yeah, that all sounds really great, but unfortunately we're about to discover our first hint in the text that things are going to take a turn for the worse. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but last week we didn't talk about the numbers associated with the ages of the two patriarchs, Enosh and Canaan. And until now, I haven't mentioned the age of Mahalalel either. You remember how we talked early in the season about the symbolic value of numbers, and one of the numbers that we talked about was the number five and its association in scripture with the idea of grace. Specifically, the grace of God toward man. I do remember that. And I also talked before about the number 900 and the way that it keeps coming up in the description of the patriarchs because it's a multiple of 60, which communicates ideas about kingship. And the number 900 seems to be the base around which most of these numbers tend to hover. For Enosh, his lifespan of 905 years reflects an element of grace afforded him by God in spite of his weakness and his obvious mortality. And then we look at Canaan, and we talk about him as being representative of the place in which God would cause his name to dwell and where he would take up his rest, which could be seen as a double portion of grace and aligns with the 910 years of his total lifespan. But then we get to Mahalalel, 895 years. It would seem that not only was that extra grace lost, but indeed a measure of grace was lacking. Well, that's not good. I think that what we see here is a picture of the story of Israel in the lead up to the exile. The people that were set apart by God and through whom the promised seed would come, in spite of their mortality and frailty, found a place for God to dwell among them. But it soon became apparent that their glory was not in their God. Instead, their boasting and their pride was in the other gods. Remember how I talked about the ambiguity of the word El as a divine name? Unfortunately, The unfaithfulness and the idolatry of Israel resulted in them losing their place in the land. And there's more bad news to come as we get into the second half of this genealogy when we continue on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, but not without hope. Thankfully, our God is more faithful than we are, so it's just as well that our hope rests in him and not in ourselves. Indeed. Uh, But now it's time for Q&A. Let's take a question from our listeners and give them some answers to their giant Questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Bernard asked this question via the website, giantanswers.com. I am a new listener to the show. Welcome. So you probably have answered this question numerous times, perhaps. My question is, if the nations were turned over to the gods, according to Deuteronomy 32, why were they judged for worshipping false gods? Were these gods loyal to God in the beginning and then desired worship for themselves, or were they corrupt from the beginning? Were the nations doomed for destruction because they worshipped these gods? I'm confused about how the judgment and God's expectation of the nations worked since the nations were given over to other gods. Okay, thanks for the question, Bernard, and you're right. This is something I've spoken about before, but I don't mind touching on it again. I also talk about it in my book. Now that I think about it, is it Bernard? Bernard? I, I don't know. 
Probably the most concise response to this question and some other questions associated with it can be found in season four, episode eight of this podcast. Make sure you check that one out. The predominant view on this issue is the idea that God appointed the lesser gods to have dominion over the nations of the world, which was supposed to be some kind of means by which these people in their respective groups could be brought back to the knowledge of the Most High God and into loyalty to him alone under the guidance or shepherding of these lesser gods. Okay, that makes sense. And since God is good, he would naturally appoint not the fallen sons of God, but those who remained loyal to him to carry out this task of guiding the peoples of the world back to the knowledge of God. But over time, these divine beings became corrupt and started to desire this worship for themselves. Okay, that also makes sense. But that's where this all starts to fall apart. Uh, what? Well, we don't have any record in scripture of the particular nature or the allegiance of these divine beings who were put in charge of the nations. Neither do we see evidence of this gradual turning away or deliberate act of rebellion on the part of these divine beings after the incident at Babel. Oh, yeah. So what we do know is that they'll be judged for their wickedness as per Psalm 82, and we also know that God's action in Genesis 11 was undertaken to deal with apostasy on the part of the people who were constructing an artificial high place for the purpose of interaction with the divine realm. When God talks about this endeavour and the possible consequences of its potential success, it seems clear that these people were seeking divine power or glory outside of the sanctioned means. In other words, it wasn't the Most High God that they intended to worship at Babel. Oh, yeah. Now, as I've already said elsewhere, it does not impugn the goodness of God to have him putting corrupt leaders in charge of people or places. We know that the scripture teaches us that there's nobody in authority that God hasn't put there. Romans 13 verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And that being the case, you only have to look around and see the kind of corruption that exists in places of authority in the world to know that God isn't particularly concerned with waiting for people to be perfect before he puts them in charge. I would suggest that the same thing is true of the invisible realm as well. Can't argue with that logic. But we also know that people will be held to account at the last day in the final judgment for what they've done with everything that was entrusted to them. That applies to every authority and every person under authority. And the same is going to hold true for those rebellious sons of God. So putting them in charge of the nations was not some kind of promotion or blessing for them, but actually would serve to increase their condemnation because it would provide opportunity for them to show their true colours and prove that they are indeed worthy of the judgment that is coming upon them. And the entire world is going to bear witness to that. So how are we supposed to look at this apportionment of the people of the world under these rebellious sons of God? Is it fair that God put the bad guys in charge of them only to then turn around and say, well, it's your fault that you worship false gods. Look out. It's the angry God of the Old Testament. He's back. Yeah, that guy. And that's where I think we need to have a correct view of what was happening at Babel, because when we understand that it was the people who instigated this and who built that city and that tower for the purpose of investing in themselves the power of the gods, then we can see where the responsibility lies with the consequences of these actions. Basically, God was just giving them what they wanted, and that would serve to function as a judgment against them. And that's the kind of thing that we see outlined in Romans 1, according to Paul. So it's definitely consistent from the Old Testament to the New. So as for the peoples of the world and whether they'll be judged for their idolatry, I think the general rule would be to say, yes, they will be judged. But also, we must remember that the Lord knows the heart and considers whether a person has knowingly rejected his creator or not. 
And we also need to acknowledge that the understanding of the Most High God that is held by a particular culture may look different to how we might expect it to look in our own culture or according to our own worldview. We have to be careful that we don't make ourselves the judges of others and that we don't impose on others our own standards that bring them into condemnation where they might otherwise have lived in freedom. True. Anyway, I think it might be more helpful if we frame the discussion in terms of natural justice rather than judgment and condemnation. And when we look at it this way, we can see the idea of God giving over the nations and the gods that they followed to the consequences of their choices. And that might seem like God is abandoning the world, but we have to remember the redemptive purpose of the seed of Abraham and the plan of salvation that was going to be worked out through the nation of Israel. The point of which was that Israel would become the new Adam serving as priest to the world, a destiny which Christ ultimately fulfilled and continues to fulfill today in order that we might have a means by which to embrace the promise of eternal life and escape the coming judgment. That's good stuff. Amen, brother. So hopefully that provides something of an answer for you, Bernard. Bernard? Bernard? I don't know. And once again, thank you for asking. I also want to say thanks to everybody else who's been sending in questions and messages of encouragement and feedback of all kinds. It seems our audience is growing faster all the time. And I do not keep track of the metrics because I don't want to start getting obsessed about the numbers. So I couldn't tell you how many listeners we have or how far we're reaching. But I can see that just from the volume of traffic I get through the website and the personal interactions that I get to have with people online from all walks of life. It's a good feeling to know that what we're doing is helping people out. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, recently, I've had a bunch of people contact me individually and tell me how much they're appreciating the content of this podcast, and especially in light of the passing of Dr. Michael Heiser earlier this year. And I'm not saying that to try and compare myself to him because that would be foolish. All I'm saying is that there are plenty of people out there looking for content that goes a bit deeper than your average evangelical Bible study group. And I'm also saying, welcome aboard, and I hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, for sure. Well, all of that is awesome. Uh, That's the end of our episode for today. Stick around as we prepare to dive into the second half of Genesis 5. And don't forget to send in your giant questions at giantanswers.com. See you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Ah. It's a trap. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I just cut him. I just cut him off the card. I see. Oh, very good. Um, this was cheap. He comes with some tiny accessories. Don't know what that is. I think it's like a talking stick. Oh, they're very tiny. Something rather.
don't generate the picture. He's actually using the this thing on a chair sitting down, but uh, doesn't have a chair. But that's okay. Is it a computer? Or yeah, I guess it's like Star Wars iPad. Just trying to make room. I see, and that's um, uh, the uh, the Apple Pencil. <laughs> well, it could be a flute. Yeah, I could see him playing a flute. In the band. Yeah, you know, Phil in the cantina. In, yeah, in the cantina band. It'd fit right, or maybe the conductor. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah, I never, never thought of Admiral Akbar as the conductor of the cantina band, but uh, it could work. He has an air of authority, yet subtle grace about him. Yes, I think it's those beautiful green eyes. Um, yeah, I don't know how he because he's got the fish eyes. So the eyes are on the side. Mm. I mean, I suppose they do like make him move forward. Otherwise, he's just gonna have to walk sideways like a crab to see where he's going. We just have constant peripheral vision, but nothing straight ahead of him. Yeah, it'd be hard to sneak up on him. It's, that's true. That's handy. Yeah, the war in the stars. Well, it's good for detecting traps. True. Um, did I show you the bare-chested um, German mechanic? Bare-chested German mechanic. From Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Who could forget that iconic character? See, German mechanic. Yes. Uh, these are the original. Uh, you could get. The, I got these with JB Hi-Fi for like ten bucks or something. Oh, and yeah. there's a uh, there's Indy. Is it like an action figure with the um, you know, where like you push a button and his back gets chopped up and? Been <laughs> better. Any improvement? I did finish rebuilding my bike and i rode it oh wow so oh, nice that felt like a big achievement even though that's, i just did a lap of the park with the kids you know that's progress um yeah. were you uh, nervous at all uh, a little <laughs> no ptsd well i was just like i you know i i kept thinking to myself well if i slip on a bit of sand or you know a pile of leaves or something and go down on my left arm you know when he had told you so i will not come back from that <laughs> No, but uh, you had fun. It was good to get out. Oh, yeah. Yep, and I was really impressed with the bike. I put a lot of work into designing it to suit my my new riding position. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, uh, yeah, gave it a, a new aesthetic as well. Went for, uh, you know, old school rad. <laughs> nice. It's a trap. It's a trap. And from the Septuagint, and Malalil lived 165 years and became the father of Yerat. I've got to try that again. Phenomena. A bit less faffing and a bit more business. A reverse mullet. Yes. I have to grow a fringe and shave my neck. My question is, if the nations were turned over to the gods according to Judah... I was going so well. Yeah. <laughs>